Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad Olaf Polat. I have a very fascinating discussion for you today with my guest, author Daniel Levin, who is also a lawyer and a member of the board of the Liechtenstein Foundation for State Governance. He has written the book Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. The genesis of that book starts with a request that he gets, which leads him to a dinner in Paris, which then has him trying to recover a hostage in Syria. It is a very interesting conversation. It is a very interesting insightful book. I highly recommend you pick it up. I'm going to leave a link to it, proof of life down in the show notes. But for now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Levin. And there we go. Thanks, Daniel, for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, I usually keep the the pre-discussion, the pre-recording discussion very brief because typically that's when I get into very interesting conversations. So I learned that very early on that uh, not to hit, to hit record as quickly as possible. Um, so your st- this is just doesn't sound like something real, right? Like when you read Proof of Life, this story really does sound like something that just came out of a movie and doesn't happen to like, quote unquote, real people. Um, so maybe you could start us off in the beginning. You, you get this phone call, you get this request, and, and it takes you on this you know, month-long adventure. How does that start? Where does the seed of your story start? I think the seed of my story probably starts with sort of um, my life story because I've lived all over the place and it it got me to the work that I'm doing now. But maybe just to make it more concise, I run a foundation in Europe that was started by one of the monarchs, the Prince of Liechtenstein. It was started in 2008, 2009. And the point of the foundation is to essentially work in war zones and with failed states, and that's a pretty loose definition, uh, to rebuild their countries. And the idea always is to, while, while we help mediate in current conflicts, what we're really focused on is trying to identify really young people in their early 20s, sometimes teenagers or early 20s, and either work with them in that country or take them out of the country and prepare them for future leadership, not just political leadership, leadership throughout society. It can be religious, it can be professional, it can be educational, whatever. And that's what the origin was of this story, too. So when the Arab Spring broke out in 2011 and 2012 throughout the Middle East, North Africa and the Middle East, we were asked to help in different forms, both in political mediation, such as in Egypt, Uh, between the Brotherhood and the military regime, and then also uh, increasingly in uh, other parts of the Middle East. And this particular origin of the story was in Syria, where in 2012-2013, the Assad regime wasn't doing very well in the war. There was a pretty united opposition. This is before the massive explosion of ISIS in the country, and this is certainly before the Russian intervention on behalf of the regime. So, So the country was as broken as it is today, but it wasn't clear at all that the regime would emerge victoriously. And I use this term pretty loosely. But um, at the time, we were asked both by the regime and by opposition groups to help mediate in the conflict. And we said we'd be willing to do that under the condition that each part of the conflict would give us some young people that we could work with to make them part of a post-conflict team to rebuild the country, again, in all areas, not just politics. This is now, this is 10 years ago. And uh, we did this for about nine months. I was in Syria. We did some of the training 
uh, outside of Syria. We tried to get people to Beirut, even to Europe, but very quickly realized that the regime wasn't really serious, that they were undermining the process. And so we basically aborted this as one of a failed project of our initiative. Uh, and very often, the stories that I ultimately end up telling, whether it's in Proof of Life or in my prior book, Nothing But a Circus, which talks a lot of failure, uh, are are the most interesting experiences are the ones where we really failed to fulfill our mission. And so what happened in Syria is, uh, despite the project, this particular mediation not going on, because we had relationships with all, this, all the power centers in the country, uh, we were asked increasingly by governments and by families and by news organizations to help locate missing people, whether those are journalists, aid workers, politicians, sometimes uh, even uh, intelligence agents because they had been kidnapped or had gone missing. Uh, and these requests started to come with increasing frequently. And in Proof of Life, I write about one such request that came uh, in late 2014. It actually came on the heels of a very painful experience where I was asked to help with the hostage negotiation and basically just days before I could meet with a kidnapper, the hostage was executed. And uh, this is also, this was the fall of those very gruesome executions. If you remember James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, uh, later on a little bit Kayla Muller in January of, of uh, 15, but to the fall of 2014 was an extremely brutal fall. So I had, I had basically said, I'm done with Syria. I, I can't do this anymore. It was too traumatizing. And then this request came, uh, from uh, from someone that I describe in the book is uh, basically someone I had met two years earlier, but it was more of a friend of a friend. Uh, but he, I, he he just broke down on a walk in Paris and asked me whether I could help locate a young man who had gone missing. It wasn't really quite clear who he was and why he had even gone into Syria. And and so the book details those twenty days where I'm basically on the trail of this person. Uh, I also had to spend time in Syria, but couldn't put that into the book because it was embargoed information uh, for a number of reasons, both the foreign intelligence agency involved, but also because the people in Syria who had helped me would be in harm's way if my presence in Syria had been disclosed in the book. But so I, I even though I leave out the part that takes place for several times for a few hours in Syria, or a few days in some cases, I, I do talk about the remaining 20 days throughout the Middle East, basically on the trail. And that, that's how this came up. It's, it's, uh, it, may re it may read fantastically for those not in the region, but for those who have spent time in that kind of a war economy, uh, it will feel, I think, very, very real. Wow. And, and so when you get this request, do you say yes right away? You know, is, is, did it take a few days? I'm just curious, um, mainly because it's it seems like such a massive and dangerous undertaking. Um, how how did the process go? The conversations go. I got the request. I got a request to meet someone in Paris. This this person that I met a few years earlier. It's not someone I was particularly close to. Much older than myself. Um, a person who was extremely well networked in the Middle East, extremely well, uh, and and very connected to presidents in in Washington, in Paris, prime ministers in London, someone a pretty prominent person. I was surprised by the request, but he sounded very very desperate. And so I happened to have a trip scheduled to Europe, so I went to Paris and met him. We met for dinner. And then after dinner, went for a long walk through Paris, and and he just basically broke down. And it, it became clear to me that this request was very personal to him. 
I I had I told him then and there that I really didn't want to get drawn pulled back into Syria one more time, but I promised to make a few calls and I that night reached out to a dear friend of mine Khalid al-Maghri, he's uh, half Saudi, half Syrian, very connected in the region, was very close to at the time Crown Prince and later King Abdullah in Saudi Arabia, then had to flee the country because his advice was perhaps perceived as too progressive, including by the current king in Saudi Arabia, who at the time was a governor, uh, and, uh, and, and ended up in Qatar. He and I had met 20 years ago, by pure chance, in Qatar, actually, waiting in the lobby of a hotel to be picked up to our respective meetings, both being stood up. And we happened to be reading the same book that uh, while we were waiting there, and so we just started to chat it up. And and I, he's become a dear friend, a mentor, taught me a lot also. But he's very connected in Lebanon and Syria to the highest levels, uh, both to all the militias and political leaders in Lebanon and also in Syria, from the regime to Islamist groups. And he had helped with prior hostage negotiations. There are several. British and American hostages who made it out, who are alive today, thanks to him. So someone who's been very involved. And he usually tells me yes or no right away. Um, and when I mentioned this to him, he said he'd look into it. Um, but if I, if we could help, then I'd have to probably travel to the region myself and, and basically get the green light to get more information on this. Uh, and and so that's the message I then conveyed. I I really I didn't perceive it as a dangerous mission itself because I've spent my life in that region. I you know I was born in Israel. I um, had a lot. I then lived in Kenya as a little boy. My dad was a diplomat, and then back in the Middle East and developed close friendships with with people in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, um, Palestinians. So. For me, it, it's a it's a it's a comfort zone in that sense. Obviously, I try not to be reckless, and I travel in the parts of Syria I certainly wouldn't go to. But I I didn't perceive it as a dangerous mission per se. It ended up having some, you know, slightly hairy situations as these things tend to have. But I, I didn't. My first reaction is not you know that I have to be really careful not to do it. There are many requests I get that I have to decline because they can't be done safely. So the perspective that you may have as a reader is not one that I experienced in that moment. It was, for me, the hardest part was whether I want to be drawn back into this Syrian nightmare because these hostage situations really very, very rarely have happy endings. And as an outsider, uh, do you, I, I say outsider because, um, you know, you have these people who are connected as well, is there some advantage given to you, do you think, in that situation? Um, it, it seems like both of these connected people uh, would have contacts within the country to be able to to perhaps, you know, rescue this person. Is the, is the dynamic a little bit different? It's different for a number of reasons. Uh, an outsider is certainly, I think, an, an accurate term. It's it's different, first of all, because I'm not perceived to have any existing affiliations with one side or the other. So, um, you know, if I were closely associated with the regime, then I would be absolutely toxic to the opposition and to the Islamist groups. If I'm associated with them, I'm toxic to the regime, even though they all do business together you're disqualified by being close, perceived as close to one camp. And the fact that I'm not that, the fact that I'm also European, I travel there with a Swiss passport, 
Uh, it's utterly unthreatening. It's neutral. Our foundation in Liechtenstein is completely neutral um, to the extent we do mediation and we do we engage actively in mediation also between hostile governments. We do that always neutral in the sense neutral doesn't mean valueless, doesn't mean that you abhor war crimes. It's that, it, that you don't that you don't take a view on that, but you're not representing one side. We don't lobby. We don't represent any side. We're really just trying to mediate between positions and that it gives you that kind of an access. And lastly, I think outsiders helpful because in order to resolve hostage situations, you need to have essentially a bag of goodies that is legitimate. So if I take ransom payments off the table, which I do as a matter of principle, I don't get involved in that because I, I really deeply believe that every ransom payment triggers 10 new kidnappings, um, which is why people personally involved should never negotiate they're kidnapping, God forbid, a family member, because you're going to do anything to release that person. Uh, but but the moment money changes hands, uh, I don't get involved. Our foundation doesn't get involved. There are certainly situations where other governments, including Gulf monarchies, pay ransom on behalf of a Western government so that they can get around the principle of not paying to terrorist groups. Uh, but the, first of all, I don't, as a matter of principle, don't get involved. Second of all, there's no need for me to get involved because no one needs me in that moment. But what it allows us, this status, is to provide uh, essentially chips or benefits or goodies uh, without being of that nature. For example, if a mother of a hostage taker requires medical treatment and she can't travel because her son is sanctioned, we might be able to arrange chemotherapy in Cyprus or in Germany or in Turkey, uh, where you can provide something in return for whether it's a release in the best of cases, sometimes it's just proof of life or other form of information or access or medical treatment for a hostage. It depends on what it is. But there's a whole universe of favors and counter favors, often third party favors. Sometimes it's not even direct for a hostage taker, but you do a favor for somebody who can do a favor for the hostage taker. And so you get sometimes two or three additional pieces involved. And that's the way you work your way bit by bit. First, you try to get information on who even is holding the hostage. Then you try to get information on the condition of the hostage, where the hostage is alive. Uh, then you try to get proof of life currently. Then you try to get access if you're lucky. Uh, and then you try to negotiate a release. In the case when a regime or a regime militia is holding a hostage, that usually all gets compressed into one moment because regimes like the Syrians don't want to reveal that they have a hostage until they're ready to trade it, because once they've revealed it, then the regime becomes again subject to a bigger sanction. So, you know, there's all these dynamics that play and knowing how to navigate that and having essentially a network of contacts and favors, essentially just a bag of chips that you can decide when to cash in and you have to keep on collecting them, of course. I think that part of being an outsider can be really helpful because you're not you're not a state actor. You're not representing any one side. It's not a formal thing. It's totally deniable. In other words, if it doesn't work out, it never gets public. Even when it does work out, we keep it private. We don't really talk about these types of situations, also the successful ones, for a number of reasons. But it doesn't. No one's really helped by by advertising this kind of activity. But but the outsider status is conducive in that way, mainly really because it's unthreatening to anyone that you're dealing with. That makes a, a lot of sense. And and so it seems like, it sounds like you, you need a very personal, deep understanding of all the players and 
all of their specific wants and maybe you know advantages and disadvantages of offering certain things um it's it's it sounds extremely complicated it doesn't to to me you know a, a hostage negotiation you know a, a regime or a, a gang or somebody's holding a hostage um doesn't seem like they're the type to play the long game maybe regimes yes um but it seems like a very tense situation both for the negotiator but also the other side in in terms of they want to leverage as much as they can uh without giving away too much which which can seem to deadlock a lot of these kind of conversations is that is that what happens in, in many cases yeah i mean the hostage taking you know from our perspective on the outside looks like is always just such a tragedy and if you know we 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 talk about the criminal aspect of that behavior but from the inside in the war economy trades you know taking hostages is just part of the war economy they can and these hostages get traded just like diesel fuel gets traded and cooking oil and medicine and blankets and water and 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 copper for you know for buildings or or, or young girls that get you know, kidnapped from their villages and sold into sex slavery. So every everything becomes a commodity, as do hostages. So there are some situations where you take a hostage and try to cash it in very quickly. But actually, many of these groups do play the long game in the sense that they there's a balance that they're very aware of, where it's an appreciating asset for a while until you hit a cliff and then the asset becomes worthless. And so uh, it, it's a little bit, and I don't mean to sound callous with that, but it's a little bit like this, the sports analogy that you're better off trading a player a year too early than a year too late. So hostage takers have become very, very shrewd about recognizing how much longer their asset will appreciate in value and when they have to ultimately get rid of it. Uh, the, the, the the difficult part is that they have no scruples about just, you know, killing a hostage if it has no more value or if the cost of keeping the hostage alive at some point surpasses whatever rewards they might get. The most difficult part in preventing this from becoming a long game and a long process is that by the time we get asked to get involved, a lot of damage has been done either by the governments of the hostage country or their families in the sense that they make it very public. They start public campaigns. It can be anything from you know, a secretary of state or foreign minister making endless you know, highfalutin remarks about the fact that they demand a return of the hostage and this will not go unpunished and all that stuff, which does nothing other than either irritate the hostage takers or and or convince them that they have someone of high value. Uh, and then the families that get increasingly desperate and they do anything they can. Publicity campaigns, you saw this now with Brittany Griner. Now, if you have a celebrity that's a hostage like Brittany Griner, then that might help because you're essentially forcing the administration's hand not to stop because the celebrity has a certain power. But when you do that for someone who's not a celebrity, for an aid worker, for a journalist, for someone else, and they have no such status, making it public by the family really only increases the price that the hostage takers are going to take. And that that that's the first step that these things will take longer, because the hardest part then isn't to get access to the hostage taker or even get proof of life. The hardest part is to convince the hostage takers that they don't have someone of immense value. So when someone comes and says, even if you take money off the table and they say, well, we want you to, you know, unfreeze uh, these 30 accounts worth $800 million in from South Korea to Britain or wherever, or we want you to get these 35 people off the sanctions list. So we want you to, let's say in Yemen went through this, we want you to uh, make sure that that 
600 Houthi fighters in, that are in prison in Abu Dhabi and in Saudi Arabia are returned back before we even give you access to the hostage. When those demands start to happen that way, that's often the result of too many people inquiring about the hostage and families doing this publicity campaign. And that's the, that's the, that's a real nightmare. And when we only get involved then, it's very hard for us to accelerate the release because the price keeps going up. So a lot depends. If you want to resolve these things quickly, a lot depends on the families keeping this quiet. Nobody's helped with these public campaigns. Again, unless you have a celebrity as a hostage and you need to mobilize your own government to you know, get off its butt and start getting active. Uh, but in any other scenario, it's only harmful. But but there are, in fact, in many war zones, Syria being one, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, and I'm not not just Middle East. This is in, in, in all countries where you have kidnappings. It could be Central America, same thing. There are tragedies of hostages that are years and years. There is an American well-known case of someone who's been there now in, in prison for 10 years. There are, I'm aware of, uh, prisoners, non-Syrians in languishing, Westerners languishing in, in Syrian prisons, one for 21 years, one for 18 years, that predates the war, and both are still alive. Uh, I'm not involved in the, in those cases whatsoever, but I'm aware of it, and I have evidence that they're alive. So sometimes these things really take a very, very long time, and, and there is, it's of course true that there comes a moment where if you haven't been able to affect a release by a certain moment, it does become very, very unlikely. For, for a whole number of reasons. And, and I'm always, uh, you know, sort of fascinated by that, those very long cases. It, it's, it's, it almost seems, you know, that you, you have somebody there for 10, 20 years. It's, it seems almost, you know, counterintuitive that they wouldn't try to negotiate that person and rather than keeping them there for so long. Right. It doesn't seem like there's an, they've lost, I guess, you know, you take a hostage, to try to get some advantage, you know, to, you know, for either for money or for a release or something like that, or, you know, so it seems kind of counterintuitive to keep somebody for 10, 20 years. Once you said, once that kind of time cliff is hit, why does that happen? Um, as opposed to them, at least just making some kind of bargain, even if it's not exactly, you know, what they're looking for, you know, why not just try to deal that person off? Why keep them, you know, indefinitely like that? Well, you know, hostage takers are are humans just like everyone with their own frailties and their own egos. So many cases, you know, what you ask me, why would someone go gamble and keep throwing good money after bad money and then at some point go wager their house and their savings and their children's college funds and education? Why would they do that? That's not a rational choice. Why not just cut your losses, get get out with what you have? And it's the same kind of thinking where there is a gambling element. To, they're, even though very rational players, there's still a gamble on an asset appreciating. Uh, and when that doesn't turn out, like many people, uh, you know, as humans, we struggle sometimes to admit our mistakes. And so they double down on that mistake. And my job then is very often to spend not so much time negotiating a release, but rather convincing a hostage taker or a group that whatever they do, to release a person was brilliant strategy from the beginning. In other words, you're trying to build up their ego to give them the sense that you know they, they outsmarted everyone along the way. But that's not different than dealing with politicians. And you know, in my work, having to deal with people in Washington or London or Paris or wherever, 
the more senior politician, the more I have to convince them that they are just simply so much smarter, almost godlike figures, so much smarter than anyone else. If you really want them to do something that they're otherwise not incentivized to do, you have to give them a sense that it was their idea, that they're going to be celebrated for generations to come as heroes, and that they were visionaries and saw things that others didn't see. It may sound almost comic book-like in the way you have to exaggerate it, but you, you almost never go wrong when you decide to feed into people's vanity and narcissism. And the same thing is true for hostage takers. They're sometimes very, very frail egos. They can be the ones that who, are, who have the propensity towards the most violence are usually also the biggest narcissists, uh, which shouldn't surprise anyone. And that's not a political statement, that's just a human statement. And so they can be very rational and very narcissistic at the same time. So my job is to is to build up that ego and do that in a way that displays, you know, it's kind of a little bit like when you travel, if you're going to experience a place, you have to have an authentic curiosity. It can't just be a curiosity coming from a position of, of a much better place because you think that, you know, our cultures, our civilizations are superior, whatever. So the more authentic that curiosity is, the more you can communicate with someone in their language, enjoy their food, do it in a way your behavior mirrors their habits. It's respectful that way. There's a flattery for them that's built into that kind of a curiosity. So a lot of the discussions, trying to get people not to hold a hostage forever, is to convince them that they didn't make a mistake by cashing it in when the market price was that much higher, right? So if you're multi-year process, and it's pretty clear that half a year in, they would have gotten a lot more for the hostage than they might get today. You have to do that by saying by how much more brilliant it was and how understandable it was that they held on longer and how many more spoils or dividends they might get in the future indirectly and so on. So you have to start to build into this. And, and the more violent uh, a hostage taker is, the more you have to feed into this without being too submissive. That can backfire too. But... So there are a lot of, you know, human imperfections that are built into how people compensate for the mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. And, you know, it's like playing the stock market. If you try to if you try to outsmart the market and buy or sell at the exact perfect time, you're going to lose. You know, it's the, the idea is to figure out what the traje trajectory is and be on the right side of that trajectory. And the same thing is true in a hostage negotiation. You, you can't time the highest value but if it's very clear to everyone that they missed that point by years in certain cases you then have to repackage that as a brilliant strategy from the beginning but not do it too uh too clearly so that they're insulted by your flattery so that's the balance and that's culturally can vary dramatically that's different not just in the arab world from other parts that's different in the middle east from the gulf you know the gulf is much more open to sort of even language flattery, also because they're monarchies or they perceive themselves as monarchies there. So the language that comes with talking to a sheikh in the Gulf is very, very different from one in the Middle East. So those are cultural differences that that really can determine whether you're going to be successful or not. So, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because when you're approached, you know, in Paris, you're at the dinner, you're asked, you know, can you find this person? Can you can you get this person back for us? Um, it's clearly, it's obviously no small undertaking, but it requires so much uh, delicacy, but also a lot of knowledge, both on the ground, culturally, at certain different levels. So when you when you agree to do this, it is a it is a massive undertaking. It is a big ask, and and the rate of success um, 
is probably not good, like you said, in these cases. Um, how you said that night you made the phone call. Is most of a negotiation, you know, from that point, is it research? Is it kind of, you know, communicating with people, meetings, talking before you, you know, you go to Syria? Or is it a much more, you know, quickly moving thing where you're on the ground right away? Uh, in most cases, most hostage situations, I have way more information on the group that's holding the person. Where he is, I may not know, you know, accurate within days whether the person's alive or what condition is or where hostages are usually moved around. So, I mean, I may have something where, where a person was a week ago or 10 days ago and not today. But I'll have more of a sense. Even if hostages are traded, you know, there's a case of an American who's been there for 10 years who was captured by a militia working with the regime. I know that he was then sold to one of the ISIS groups and then sold on to a Nusra, to, a, to the Al-Qaeda affiliate, then back to a regime militia. So you, you have to, tr but you generally have a sense. If you have your ears on the ground and you have friends on the ground, you, within very quickly, you can get a sense of, uh, of a likely current or very recent uh, group holding the person. So I had to have more information. In this particular case, I had none because I'd never heard of this hostage. I have contacts with groups in the U.S. government and in, in London in particular, and the French government, who deal with citizens who have been taken hostage in other countries. And my contacts had never heard, my current in government and intelligence had never heard of this hostage. So it was it was really a clean slate. And it, this, this particular case, rather than dealing with either a regime or an Islamist group in Syria, which are the primary hostage-taking groups, um, in this particular case, it was a totally different group. It was a gang that was dealing with this amphetamine, Captagon. And I had to try and chase this gang throughout the Middle East and their gang leader to figure out what had actually happened. So I, I couldn't, this was a very different kind of case. So uh, it, it was, I can't really recall another situation where I knew that little, first of all, about the hostage and then about who who had him, what what the person had gone there for. It wasn't clear. Was it there was a suspicion at some point that he, the hostage himself, there was a drug related reason for him to be in Syria that turned out not to be correct. But even just I'd weeding through that took quite a bit of time. And that's, you know, that's with the help of relationships on the ground and our foundation staff in many hostage cases who work really hard and and provide background information on that and research. Um, and in this particular case, I really needed my friend Khalid to to uh, vouch for me that I could talk to the head of the most powerful political military group in Lebanon. I had to meet him in person. Uh, that he would agree to send me essentially on the trail of this criminal gang. Why he did that is a whole different story. And again, it's a whole baskets of favors and counterfavors there. And this is a person who's sanctioned and and uh, and his group is considered a terrorist group by the West and the European Union also. So this was a complicated, this was a very delicate mission. And I had to go there myself and spend a night with him in Beirut to essentially for him to vet me, to allow his deputy to then send me on the trail of this criminal gang. And this was for me really new in the sense that I'd never dealt with major drug gangs who weren't political players in Syria, meaning neither regime or the regime militias or Islamist or opposition fighters either. Even though many of them also deal with drug trades or weapons trades, this particular gang was purely just a commercial criminal gang. They were just they were primarily dealing with drugs and and uh, sex slavery. And so I had to I was basically 
kicked onto the chase or onto the tail of this particular group trying to catch up with them. And that was a very, very different one because I knew nothing about that. I mean, I had obviously knew about this drug, Captagon, that's mass manufactured there and that's because destabilized the Middle East. It's destabilized Saudi Arabia. This is a drug that a Saudi neurologist friend of mine told me that they estimate that over 50% of Saudi men between 17 and 25 have some form of Captagon addiction. So it's it's really a drug pandemic in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and and the only reason it isn't one is in the U.S. is because we have Oxycontin and fentanyl. We have way more powerful drugs that have created a pandemic here. But uh, for me, this experience was new because I was not in my own comfort zone here, in a comfort zone in the sense of working from a position of you know, a reasonable amount of knowledge and familiarity with the actors. I've I had met the regime actors and the militia actors and even the Islamist group actors. I had met them over many negotiations from 2011 to 2014 at the time, over those, you know, two and a half years, I'd say, or three years. Uh, that was not the case here. I knew nothing about these kinds of gangs. So so that was that was difficult and very, very uh, draining in the sense that you're constantly every day confronted with something unknown. You don't know the players. You don't know whether they're rational, not rational, whether they are violent in the sense that they try to make a point by being violent before they afterwards come back and say, okay, let's negotiate, right? So that's uh, dynamics that are very, very different from government actors or even religious militia groups. Yeah, it, it it sort of brings up the you know the question: How do you? I mean, it, it seems like there's a a major risk to yourself to not become a hostage as well, right? When you're potentially meeting groups, meeting people, um, and I would think as a as a hostage, you know, you're negotiating uh, hostages, you are already perceived as a high value hostage. I would think you know somebody who's connected, somebody who people might want, you know, already has a high value. So how do you? work around that danger itself, you know, uh, to, to keep yourself safe? I mean, first of all, just on an operational basis, I, you know, the, the most important part of avoiding danger is by avoiding danger. So then they're going to be, if, if I'm asked to go to a meeting in Raqqa, let's say in Northeastern Syria, I'm just not going to go. If I'm asked right now, uh, and this is right now, might have been not been the same a year ago, but right now, if I'm said, you know, come to Tehran, we want to have a conversation, I might not go. Uh, there was uh, a time where I got a warning that I shouldn't go to Istanbul because it was a hit on my head, so I'm not going to go. So it's so it's avoiding a situation is the most important thing. There are very, very few uh, scenarios where I will do something with a security protocol, meaning bodyguards, arms, and so on, because generally, once you have to do that, you're already assuming excessive risk as a non-state actor. I'm not there in a military capacity. I've experienced the Middle East in a military role many, many years ago in, in the Gulf War in, the, in 1990, uh, but that's not... So if I'm going now, I'm entirely vulnerable. So even if I have a huge... That might make for a you know interesting pose for Instagram accounts, which I don't do, but in terms of real safety, that's a dangerous thing to do. So... It's either I avoid something or the alternative, realistically for me, with very few exceptions, is that I do this in an entirely unthreatening public way. So, for example, in, in the events that I describe in Proof of Life, when I ultimately catch up with this gang leader in Dubai, I make sure it's always in a public spot. I make sure that friends of mine in the police locally are aware of me there and they come looking for me if they don't hear from me. But 
mostly it's very public and that assumes that I can do everything in a very unthreatening way. So that brings me to the second part. So there's this operational thing where you have three options. You avoid something, you do something with armed security, or you do something in an utterly sort of unassuming, public, unthreatening way. So that those are my three operational options. I usually choose the last one, meaning it's just a casual type of interaction. But in order to do that, I have to find a balance between being entirely unthreatening to the person I'm talking to, to the point of uh, of almost just curious about them more than anything else, but at the same time ha have enough authority where they know that if there's something they're going to get in return, that I have the ability and the authority or the influence to deliver those things. And that's my balance, and that changes from person to person. So, for example, with this drug person, with this drug gang leader uh, who who was you know, the very vicious, violent person, also a very, very vain person, just physically vain, it worked out like a maniac, took steroids and so on. Um, you can you can essentially increase your access or reduce his reluctance to talk to you, everyone to put it, by flattering a person like that, right? But just even literally commenting on his physique, commenting on the wealth that he's displaying with his clothes and things like that, or his status symbols, watches, whatever that may be. Uh, his taste in wine, you can reduce, you can increase your access and reduce his reluctance and reduce the price he's going to exact from you for whatever information he gives just through those kinds of measures. That works in that case. In other cases, it might not work that way. There may be situations where I have to insinuate a certain threat to a person, whether that's a physical one or whether that's maybe just disclosing who he is. Uh, if uh, there was a case in this particular story too, where at in Amman, uh, members, I had to deal with members of this gang, and one of them was from Michigan, from Dearborn, outside Detroit, and uh, and I had to basically indicate that I had taped our conversation so that he would basically be compromised if what he tried to do with me, which was to undermine his his colleagues in the drug gang, if I'd make that public. So it's all kinds of measures but you also never ever can overplay your hands so even if you do something of that nature always be aware that this whole facade that i'm building can collapse anytime so one of the key elements to staying safe is not extending interactions longer than they have to be and if possible avoiding multiple interactions with the same people because once they've had a chance to reflect let's say this drug gang if i had met him multiple times he would have had a chance to reflect or he might have discussed this with someone else who might have heard or met me or knew someone who knew me. So you're suddenly increasing your risk exponentially. So one of the key parts to pulling this off is trying not to interact with these people more than one time. So it's really in and out. And if you don't succeed with an in and out, you're generally not going to have a second chance at them. So those are all those kinds of measures. It's a mix of what you do physically for your danger, what you avoid, what you can do, what measures you take, and then also how you approach the individual that you're with. You do have to be fairly unthreatening. There are not a lot of thugs in that world or in, in our world that you can really intimidate. Maybe others can, but I can't. It would, again, seem very disingenuous or inauthentic if I'm suddenly puffing myself up, trying to make myself six foot five, 400 pounds of muscle. That's just not going to happen in any way, whether I mean that literally or figuratively. So you have to be authentic who you are and and uh, and hope that you have some form of a connection there and then get in and get out as fast as possible. Wow. And the, the, the book is really fascinating. I mean, it's 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 just, you know, how, how it begins from, like you said, that one request, that one meeting, and then it 
it becomes so much. I mean, it is a very long and difficult and and complicated and dangerous. Uh, there are many uh, facets to it. Um, I I I guess you know my I just have a couple of final questions. Really, my I would wonder you know if someone is taken hostage, right? Uh, hopefully that never happens to anybody, but it does happen. What should they do then if if not publicize it or not? you know, um, you know, start a campaign or something like that. What, what are the ways to try to get, what are the most successful ways to try to get somebody back and, and safe? It really, really depends who the hostage is, what nationality and who, where the hostage has been taken and who is holding the hostage. Those are all factors. I can't give you one answer to that question. If it is a state actor, you know, let's say it's a uh, autocratic regime that just, and there's right now that's happening the whole time. If someone's arrested in Europe, for planning an attack somewhere, which has happened, which is happening these days, and then uh, the the country of that uh, person who wanted to commit the attack just decides to take citizens of that European country hostage, and then you get into and this happening the whole time. I don't even have to name the countries because it's so frequent. Uh, in that situation, there's very little for me to do officially, right? Because the official channels are there; they're not going to lead anywhere. Uh, and usually it ends up by the European country giving in and finding a way elegantly or not so elegantly to releasing the person and then miraculously the other one gets released. This happens the whole time. Um, I think that when you ask what they should do, again, it depends who the they is. If it's the family members, with the very, very rare exception of the hostage being a huge celebrity, such as Brittany Griner, as example, um, the most important thing they can do is not be loud. I mean, it's, it, if you want to do a t-shirt campaign or lawn signs in your town, no one's going to be hurt by that. And it's a nice sense of solidarity. And you feel like you're part of a community and your neighbors and everyone's part of that and stops by. And, and I think that's great. And, and, and the families will need all the support they can get and have nothing negative or critical to say about that. It's also very understandable in emotionally terribly hard times. No one should ever go through this of a loved one being taken hostage. But beyond that, it doesn't help much to push your your you know State Department or Ministry of Foreign Affairs, whatever the country is, or presidency or prime minister, to make loud, do everything you can, don't leave it. Because what has happened many times, let's say uh, this is an autocratic country, just for argument's sake, let's say this is Russia, just for argument's sake, because of the Ukraine right now, and uh, an American gets taken in Russia, like Brittany Griner, well, you know, making all these statements and press conferences in the State Department saying that you demand the release, not going to do anything. Uh, and it's going to allow the other side to actually take measures that seem gratuitously cruel, just in order to raise the public pressure in the U.S. then on doing, in other words, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and another verdict and more, a, large, a longer charge and so on. It's a lot, you know, a longer sentence. And so, Pushing to make those statements is only going to make it much more painful, increase the price. The, the thing to do then is to really stop talking and find a way, a quiet access to the decision makers in those countries. There are many ways, right? This is not the formal diplomatic channels. This can be a childhood friend. I, you know, there, there are countries where, uh, you know, I had access to someone who spent time in their childhood together, where a current ruler spent time in his best friend's home 
and the best friend's father was really kind to him, and that kindness 30 years later somehow resonates, and you get access to either the father who's still alive or the best friend, and you try to influence. You may have to provide some favor in return, but that's the kind of influence where you say, let's try and resolve it in a way, and then you have to find, then you have to script a solution, not only that allows them to save face, but that allows them to present it to their own countries as having been victorious. That's with types of autocratic government hostage-taking situations, right? And then sometimes you have to script it with the legal system having taken its course so that they can say that this is what they did, and then magnanimously can sweep in and provide amnesty. It's all kinds of things. And at the same time, you have to make sure that the hostage stays safe. That may be a completely different network of people in the intelligence community. They may have contacts with colleagues in other countries who have some influence over them. They may be weapons suppliers, others. How do I keep the hostage safe? How do I make sure the hostage doesn't commit suicide while in prison, doesn't get you know, poisoned or tainted food? How do I make sure that if the hostage needs medication, it can be antidepressant, it can be, it can be diabetes medication, heart medication, that they really continue to get that? That may be a whole different avenue. So you suddenly have, it's like a military kind of operation that you have to do, and you have to do all these things in parallel. But for the families, what's important is that they keep on indicating their obviously their their sadness and their desperation. That's not very hard to do because they are sad and desperate. But they don't publicly run a campaign that leads to empty rhetoric because the empty rhetoric does nothing to release the person and really just increases the price of the hostage and irritates the hostage takers even further. So the the first advice is please, please coordinate this publicly. And the danger that you have here is that the family suddenly gets inundated with people who on its face seem to have their interest at heart, but really are doing it for their own profile. So suddenly you get PR companies that tell you we're going to help run your publicity campaign. Well, it's like, you know, the famous statement, I think it was Warren Buffett said, you don't ask your barber if you need a haircut, right? So it's the same thing here. The PR company is going to design a PR campaign when that may be the last thing that you need. It usually is. Or you get, let's say, a journalist is being taken, and then you get suddenly journal journalism associations wanting to do gala dinners. Well, that may be their fundraisers, but that's not going to do anything to advance. And the only thing you're doing is suddenly raise the profile of this journalist or aid worker, right, where suddenly... Doctors Without Borders wants to run a global campaign and it becomes part of the fundraising letter. So that serves that, but that doesn't do anything to get that doctor or aid worker released. So you have to try really hard to convince the family to please don't do this unless the person you're talking to can map out for you step by step how all this is going to lead to a release don't engage. Whoever it is, that can be a national security advisor of a government or a foreign minister or a president. That can be a PR expert. That can be, again, someone who runs the committee to protect whatever, doctors, journalists, aid workers, right? Whatever it is, unless they can explain. And when people have their vested interest, whether it's political visibility, like a secretary of state, right, where it's just another press conference, and I'm sure they would like the person to come home. I'm not saying they're callous about it, but making a statement like that is not going to bring that person home. So unless there is a, a map to do that, because negotiating a hostage release is extremely nuanced. As you know, I've just laid out just a few factors. It's not just 
dealing with the captors, and sometimes the captors are not unified on that, and you have to make sure they don't openly fight over this, because when they openly fight, that usually leads to an execution of the hostage. Uh, then how do I deal with, in the interim, making sure the hostage stays safe and healthy and doesn't hurt him or herself? You know, all those things come into play, and unless you're holistically dealing with all those factors, you're not going to get the person home safely and healthily. So. Uh, it, it mostly requires a quiet and really coordinated campaign rather than some kind of a Again, I'm not talking about lawn signs or T-shirts because they're not going to hurt anyone. And if they give a family a sense of not being alone in it, that's extremely important. And they have to sometimes get through not just a few days or weeks, but months and sometimes years of this kind of agony. And it is agony every single day for a parent, for a sibling, for a child of a hostage. So um, I take this... I take a really holistic approach, but but almost always, again, other than the very rare celebrity hostages, with almost no exceptions, doing this quietly is the most important advice I can give. Oh, well, uh, I, I think it's 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 interesting that you say that. It 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 is probably like you said goes against the instinct of many families, um, um, but it it is uh, it it's uh, I, I guess. Hard to tell, but I, I think uh, something that you know people who are in that difficult situation can can take away from. Um, so, uh, you know, writing about this, writing about the story, talking about you know the, the book um, must be difficult because you have to leave parts out. There are things that obviously you can't tell the all of the details. Um, you know, does that become tricky as you're writing the book? You know, what do I leave in? How do I tell this as a coherent story without taking out too much? And uh, do you worry about, you know, potentially talking too much about tactics and and the things that you did to, to get a hostage released? Well, the first decision for me was hard is whether I write this book. I had, the, you know, previous book I'd written, uh, Nothing But a Circus was really more snippets of my life in different parts of the world, from Africa to Asia to Central America, and, and sort of more comical experiences. And that book was more about showing how people in power, or more interestingly, even around power, the gatekeepers uh, and the sort of court, je court jesters, how they behave. And, 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 and it was really mostly stories of my own failure in that, and over, over a 20-year career there, or 25-year career. This book, the reason I first of all decided to write it is it, it was essentially a, I wanted to have a trap door behind me that would close. I did not want to re-enter Syria. And I felt like if I'm going to write this particular story, the requests, at least as far as Syria is concerned, would stop. And that hasn't quite worked out for me, unfortunately. Uh, but that was my initial incentive. And the other main reason I wrote it is because I really, there, there are two, at the time, young girls, now young women who helped me find the gang leader in Dubai and whom I managed to be part of their escape, um, help tangentially to get out of Dubai. And um, and the older of the two, both are very much still in my life, the older of the two actually turned 26 yesterday. And this is this story took place in 2014, so you can imagine how young they were then. Uh, the younger of the two was my, is my daughter's age. And the, the older of the two asked, promised me to tell her story. Uh, and so it was another incentive for me to write this down because they're very much woven into the hostage story themselves. Even though they're not the hostage, they they play a major role in the latter part of the book in trying to help me get the information that I need. And so 
that that was a big incentive to write it. I don't feel, I don't perceive it as revealing strategies, even in a conversation like we're having right now, um, and or trade secrets or anything of that nature. I wrote the book uh, as as literally as I could. I had to leave some things out, and I had to provide pseudonyms for the victims, like these two girls or the actual name of the hostage. Um, but I, I didn't anonymize anything else. I recorded a lot of the conversations, and I write pretty detailed diaries every day. I've been doing this since I was a kid. And so I it for me, it felt more like a diary writing of the whole thing. I footnote when I'm not sure about my recollection for whatever reason, and I try to be as honest as I can about that in the book. But it it never felt to me like I'm revealing something that otherwise wouldn't be revealed. I'm really also just trying to show how ugly this war economy really is, how dehumanizing it is, and how at the same time, in the midst of all that, you have people like these two young girls, women and women now, who take really major personal risk into helping just because they really hadn't lost their humanity. And 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 so for me it was that was my primary focus. I wasn't really worried about whether I'm going to reveal something that otherwise not would be revealed. I think that if there's any benefit, even of like a conversation you and I are having, if you know, hostage families that are suffering, undergoing anything like that can learn anything out of that, then all the better. But I, I didn't write this book in in any kind of assumption that I have something to teach people. I just really wanted to show more than teach. I really just wanted to, you know, give an accurate picture of those 20 days. And these 20 days get repeated in Syria every single day. So, you know, those who say the war is over, I have a whole postscript saying, how can you say the war is over? People are getting slaughtered and butchered. And it's now on top of everything else, the recent earthquake, which again led to all kinds of war crimes in the wake of that earthquake. So um, I perceive it more as simply an account, more of a documentary than anything else. Certainly I'm not trying to, I don't assume I'm in a position to teach anybody anything here. Well, it is a fascinating read. Um, it is, uh, you know, I'll link to it in the show notes, Proof of Life. I, I think like it makes you think as the reader that there is this whole world that we don't think about that's happening behind the scenes or things that we don't see in the news, uh, forgotten wars or forgotten people that have been taken. There are all these, um, it, it's just sort of kind of this thing which isn't under the, you know, in the mainstream, these negotiations that are taking place, these criminal groups which are popping up, changing, shifting, all of these things. And uh, people like you working, um, you know, sort of in that in that world. It's it's a really fascinating read. Uh, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to tell us and talk about this story. And uh, I hope people pick up the book because it is, like I said, just eye-opening and something you don't think about, at least most of us don't think about on a, on a regular basis. So um, thank you again very much for your time. And I hope people thank pick you. up the book. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you, Daniel, for being a guest on the Fox Nomad podcast. And thank all of you for listening. If you haven't already, make sure that you leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're listening through one of those podcast listening apps, once you leave your five stars, be sure to scroll down and check out the book Proof of Life. I'll leave that link, like I said, down in the show notes. Thank you all very much for listening to this episode. And until the next one, I hope you have a great rest of your day.